Hi, this is Michael Azaret, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Talk House. Welcome to The Talk House Music Podcast. Today's Talk House Music Podcast features Janet Weiss, who's the drummer for Slater Kinney, as well as Quasi, and she's played drums with Bright Eyes and Steve Malkmus and the Jicks. She'll be talking with Meredith Graves, the front woman from the absolutely intense hardcore band Perfect Pussy. Janet and Meredith come from two different musical generations, but they have a lot in common. Janet plays in a punk rock band, and Meredith plays in a hardcore band. Meredith is relatively new on the music scene, but Janet's been around for maybe 20 years, and she's accumulated a lot of wisdom and experience. Meredith had a lot of good questions for Janet, and Janet obliged with some really insightful and wise answers. They cover a lot of stuff, like their fear of beer or staying healthy on tour, and dog cops. You'll find out what dog cops are in a minute. It's a pretty great exchange, and here it is. Hi, Meredith. Blah, blah, blah. Hi, Most Janet. Most importantly, blah, blah, blah. Did, you, did you refill your coffee? Uh, it's, it's, it's a takeout coffee. I, it, the room does smell like coffee now, though. I think my boots smell like coffee. Okay, well, that's not terrible. Better yeah. than beer. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> better than stale beer. Anything better than stale beer. Yes, I'm a, I'm a sort of a beer phobe. I don't drink beer and I don't like the way it smells. Mm. So all these years in rock clubs has been slightly traumatizing. All the beer, all the beer that's been spilled on my drum rug and on my shoes and on my suitcase. Mm-hmm. I have a scar on my mouth from a show I was at years ago where I was drinking a can of beer and the jackass in front of me lunged backwards and his shoulder hit the bottom of my beer can as I was taking a sip. So I have this very faint semicircle cut. You'd have to be like make out distance to see it, but I have a very faint (laughs) semicircle cut out of my upper lip from some asshole. (laughs) I'm not a beer phobe. It's a problem. I need to be more of a, more of a beer phobe in the months to come. There are only a few of us in the world. There are only a few. Actually at a, at one of the show, recent shows, uh, a gentleman backstage spilled his beer on my suitcase, and I got really bummed. Like, dude, like that's my suitcase. Like, I have to take that. You know, that comes with me into the hotel. That comes with me, and in, you know, into it's all my personal stuff. And if the cops pull you over while you're driving, and your van smells like beer, yeah, exactly. And he, it ends up he was the father of like our one of our opening band members, and I felt like such a jerk because I really came down hard on him. And she's like, "Oh, that's my dad." I was like, "Oh God, I'm such a jerk." Well, I've been talking about that. I was actually talking about that with a friend of mine over in the UK this morning about um, uh, endorsing and supporting violence. <laughs> like when it's, when it's okay to tell a motherfucker no. Right. Well, I feel like telling someone is, even in a harsh tone, is, is not violent per se. So. Do you have a history of getting in fights? No, I've never been in a fight. Really? I've never been in a physical fight. You've never punched anyone? No, I've never punched anyone. I think I'm just, my arms are too big and I have, people don't pick on me. They're like, she's strong. You're a powerhouse. I'm a little bit imposing. And I grew up, like, I grew up in Hollywood, just the sort of the youngest of three kids, three girls, like, people telling me my whole life, like, you better watch out. Like, the world's a dangerous place. Like, I remember in high school, they said one in three women are going to get raped. Like, and I was like, well, that's not going to be me. Like, that will not be me. And I you know, will do my best to make sure those stats, you know, come down. Um, so I guess I was always sort of like, uh, had that kind of vi- that vibe. You know, people say like, oh, if you, 
have a certain energy to you, you won't get picked on. But I was like tough and angry. (laughs) So people didn't pick on me very much. No, there's definitely something to be said for exuding a certain odor of crazy as a self-protection mechanism. Yes, I'm very self-protective in general. No, same, yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely, in lots of different ways, like, um, you know, trying to trying to head off trouble sort of before it starts. Yeah, But I would imagine at, like, I feel like if someone came at me, like, on stage, I'm very worked up, you know, and that would be a place where... I might, uh, without realizing it, do something physical, you know? I mean, you're sort of, like, right in, right there at, like, you know, this, the line where the crowd becomes the band. Um, and I'm glad that I'm sort of back a ways because it protects me from getting into any scuffles with people. How have the live shows been going? They've been going great. Um, yeah, like... I guess I didn't know what to expect. Um, the first show was an incredible mindfuck <laughs> of just like, what is this? Where are we? What's happening? How, you know, did we prepare? Like, how is this? How is this coming across? Who are these people? Like, it was the first show was in Spokane, and it was very. Uh, I was very happy to have that one under our belts. Um, because from that point, it all made a little bit more sense, like where we were going, what we were doing. So regardless of how much you prepare or practice, which in my case, I practice a lot. Um, I practice extra, you know, just to be like able to reach a certain level of energy that I feel like is important for the shows. Um, but even with all the practice and all the, um, preparing, I think it was still, kind of a surprise to be on that stage <laughs> with those with those people playing that music it still it was surprising um but since then we've we've sort of become the the kind of machine machine like uh entity that we know we can be um and the the crowds are amazing there's all like lots of young young people and young women in the in the front singing the words which is I, I didn't know if, uh, you know, I didn't know who would, who would be there. So it's, it's been quite, quite exciting in that way. I'm so ult- ultimately, like, deeply, deeply curious, too. In terms of the new record, there were two things that really stuck out to me. I know they stuck out to everyone, but, you know. Um, the announcement, how, how you announced that you were releasing new material the way you did your choice of how how you came up with that because in today's day and age you know we've got the beyonce's and the death grips and we have these surprise overnight bang new records um your choice of doing the announcement the way you did and of course leading up to that given your your status as like this absolute figurehead touchstone band of the last however many years how the hell did you keep it secret? <laughs> what the fuck did you... Were you guys in a cave? <laughs> well, I have to say, I did not tell that many people. I, kept, I mean, I told, like, my good friends. And I even might not have been explicit about, like, oh, we recorded this record in San Francisco. And I, I mean, I really tried to keep it secret. But Carrie and Corin said they, they were telling everybody. They said they were just... They were just blabbing to everybody. So I think... It's a testament to like, I 
think no one wants to be like the first person to go out on a limb and say that this thing is happening when they're not, I mean, they're sure, but they're not, you know, who could be absolutely sure they didn't hear the record. Um, I think people just thought, oh yeah, they're, I think they thought we're playing together again, but no one knew exactly what that meant. Um, I don't know how it didn't, I don't know how it got kept as a secret. That's, that is a mystery of modern era, the modern era. Um, (laughs) we didn't threaten anybody. Um, I tried to tell as few people as possible, but as it got closer and I was working on it more and more, you know, someone asked, oh, what are you, what are you up to? And you don't want to sound like, oh, I'm just, you know, a total degenerate. I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting around, you know, like I had to, to a certain extent say, oh, well, we're working on Slayer Kinney again. But it wasn't, I don't think, ever officially, you know, I, we were vague. Yeah, I have this new job and it's taking up a lot of time. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's not going to be a conversation ender. Like the, people are going to say, oh, well, what, you know, what are you doing? They're, they're going to think you're sick or pregnant or something. Yeah, and I didn't want to, you know, I don't want to just lie. Um, I mean, Carrie had the hardest time because she was doing the most interviews. So she was like tiptoeing around it. You know, oh, I'm curious what it would sound like if we played <laughs> Like knowing exactly what it would sound like because she has a record like of all the songs. <laughs> um, so it was like definitely trying not to flat out lie, um, but you know, trying. I I thought that the I thought that the the unmarked seven inch in that box set with the new song on it, um, Tony Keywell from Sub Pop thought that up, and we were trying to find a way to like communicate with the fans directly without having to go through um, media sites or to have it announced um, by a third party. And we were just brainstorming, like, how can we get right to the fans, you know, the people who really supported us all these years, the people who we actually have the relationship with? um, How do we get to them first? You know, how how do we let them discover this new thing is actually this is happening, um, and I think just the idea of like dis- discovering something uh, on your own is you know we don't get to do that as much now as we possibly might want to. It's you know it's pretty uh, it's a pretty exciting thing to to find something like that, and you don't know what it is. You know you have to like figure it out. So th- that weekend that that box that came out with that seven inch in it was it was really fun for us to kind of see people wondering and see people, you know, having this discourse about it. Like, what is it? Where is it from? What, you know, is it an outtake from the woods? Is it uh, one beat, you know, song that never got released? Like just to see people so engaged, um, really it meant a lot. It meant a lot to me. Um, and it felt really, it felt real and felt good. It felt like we figured out, you know, a way to really, connect with people directly, um, even though it's, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just whatever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> real, real casual whatever sort of thing. <laughs> that, I think that made keeping it a secret really worthwhile, uh, having that sort of that, that mo- those moments of um, real connection with the fans. Yeah, you're granting your listeners a lot of agency. Yeah, well, that's, you know, they have, they have granted us, uh, you know, the space to, to do what we do and been, you know, really like at the shows, the shows wouldn't be the shows without, um, without those people and without that energy that they're, 
they're hurtling at us. Um, I think it's absolutely necessary to have a great performance, to have a, a great audience, uh, or to ha at least have people who are open. Um, and I think the openness is, uh, you know, we're all pretty bombarded day to day with stuff. You know, it's it's important to stay open uh, to ideas and to to people and music and um, you know, it's otherwise we're just going to be isolated, more isolated than probably is good for us. Right. And I mean, when, when I started to take, I, I'm a, a mouth breather and I do things like take notes before I talk to people that I've never met before, which I, I didn't have to tell you that because you can't see me, but I'm telling you anyway, hapless nerd <laughs> at the top of the page. I just wrote in big ass letters, just fearlessness and a list of things that I've got under here that I'm thinking about in terms of what it took to get you guys back together. And there's a certain fearlessness to that triadic friendship that you guys have established. And it's, it's, it's isolating and it's not isolating. So talking about trying to connect with your audience and keep people out of a sort of isolated state, but also the fact that the three of you have historically isolated yourselves as a triad to create this crazy unique sound. When I hear you talking about putting the seven inch in the box set and having people say like, this, this moment of discovery, this genesis of the what is this of the, the, the single. It's also kind of like that. I mean, I know how I came to your band when I was younger, but I feel like it's, it's been a miracle to see other people doing that. And it, it's, it's, it's isolating and it's not isolating and it's giving people agency and it's handing them a tool that they can go forward with and feel better equipped as a music listener and as a person existing in our culture to see what you three have done together. It's sort of occupying all of those spaces for a listener. It's, it's giving, it's giving people something to listen to that will make them in general be like, what is this? <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is, you know, the, the, that's the power question. That's what, how do you do it? <laughs> I mean, that, that is what empowers you is asking, is asking that, you know, wondering it what is it and and you know what are we and what how can we how can we connect with each other i mean i think you're right that it the, the insular quality of the three of us working on music and writing i mean if you could see the room we we practice in it's like a tiny basement airless windowless space with no reverberation and it's like a very uncomfortable uh it, it, you know, it's not a great sounding room. It's everything about it is, is, uh, is, it, it like creates an edgy, an edginess. Um, and I think that that insular quality, like allows us to like, to, to work in the way that we need to, to like kind of tune, tune a lot of stuff out. Um, but once the music is done, I think th that's why we enjoy like the live shows is so, uh, revelatory is that it's we can come out of our cave you know we can you do live in a cave I was right <laughs> we kind we kind of do you heard it here first the van sort of does live in a cave um you know writes in a cave and we live in a cave and then when the album is born we come out of our cave and it's springtime and we <laughs> you know we can uh be in the world um I think you know a lot of this music comes from like a just not from a mainstream place. It comes from a place of like not fitting in or wanting to create some sort of alternative to the stuff that's kind of been crammed down our throats our whole lives, you know, and 
Um, I think that's where, you know, our work intersects is creating, creating alternatives and, and space for, for women, especially to feel, uh, empowered when they're not, uh, when they're not living a mainstream life. Um, you know, I think something that like, um, you know, I, I don't have children and I think that's like, I feel like a woman at my age without children is just sort of like, like why, why, like, who are you? What is your place in the world? You know, like, um, I think that's really a, it's something that people don't think of that often is like, if you don't have kids or you're not, ex- if they, people don't expect that you're going to have kids that like you have no place. And part of what I do and part of the music that I make and the way I play and the, um, sort of the desperation in the playing and the the power in the playing is is to counter that is to disagree with that and to say you know I very much have a place and it's you're not going to be able to ignore this <laughs> I'm going to do something that you cannot ignore maybe I'm going out on a limb with this one but I think historically if if you look back you know societies globally everywhere all over the world when women are in that position when we're getting a little older and we're choosing not to get married, we're choosing not to have kids, historically, the only place left for us in society is in the company of other women. Right. If, if you look at it from like a Victorian perspective, women who were uh, past marrying age, whatever that was back when the average human life expectancy was 50, um, would be governesses and they would be educators of young women. Right. That's literally what is set up for us. Like the older we get, if we choose not to have kids or do whatever we're quote unquote supposed to, we're often placed in positions where we're taking care of or educating younger women. That seems like the historical setup. That's this is the punchline of a joke that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. But <laughs> but the, the the jokes on them, we win. <laughs> yes, I well I think so. I def I definitely think. I mean, I think it's, I think it's important. I just think that feeling of not belonging or not having worth is just, that is just something to, to battle. That's like the lifelong battle, you know, to like battle that and to do work that makes people feel important or makes people feel worthwhile or makes people feel alive or connected. Like that's, that's the whole point for me. Um, you know, I, I don't communicate with, uh, verbally very much you know as far as my art goes it's very primal and emotional and so how people feel when they hear it is um you know that that's like my language that's what I'm that's what I'm working with um and I want people to feel important uh, more than anything else to feel like you know what their 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 breaths are worthwhile and and being here is worthwhile. I can't stand, I can't stand to see people feeling, you know, like they have no purpose. It's really, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And I think not only do people get that sense of support and recognition from your music, but they do really also get it from seeing the relationship between the three of you. Huh, that's interesting. I, I, think never, that's thought, probably, I never thought about that. No, that's really inspiring for a lot of people. I mean, I talk a lot, I harp on a lot myself about the carbon half-life of women in punk. The idea that past a certain age, every year you get older, you see half the women your age because we get exhausted and we drop out. 
Right. So seeing a band of, of women that have been together for this long is fucking revolutionary in like a ton of different contexts. It's, it's, you're carrying a torch that you've been carrying for a while and one would think your arms would be tired, but you keep going and it rules. That's like tremendous for people to see. Well, we've, we've learned, we've learned sort of survival tactics along the way for sure. Like what? I mean, I think, I think being more in the moment and sort of appreciating appreciating the, our, our freedom and like knowing that knowing that things that happen to us outside the band outside of music make the band better and stronger um and really protecting those things um you know i think when you're younger and you're in a band and the band's doing really well there's a lot of sort of pr- momentum to sort of go on tour you know you're getting all these offers it's hard to say no to things people are really you know people are getting into your music and that feels amazing and you're reaching more people and you're what you're about is reaching more people but I think you lose sight of like um the momentum can kind of overtake you and then you're just a band and you're and you're not living um your life enough so I think taking the time off and like allowing everyone the freedom to like branch out and, and do their thing really, really helps us. Um, and I think we make decisions now, you know, to make sure that we're not just, uh, you know, we're not going to become overwhelmed with what the band is. You know, we're going to be able to, to, to have our lives and Corin has her family and Carrie has, you know, a million other things she does. And I like to play in with other people, not just the same people, um, you know, to, I think those things are all more appreciated now. The time away is more appreciated. And so we, like when we're together, it's, there's like a, there's a, like a light, a lightness to it that we didn't have before. Like really like, Oh, look at how beautiful these people are when they're not doing this, you know, like, we have to make sure we foster that. Yeah, and it also, seeing your bandmates thriving in other areas is like a really satisfying feeling. It helps people retain their personhood in a really specific and special way. Absolutely. It's the same in a relationship. You know, I think, I mean, I was married once and played in a band with my husband and worked in the same place. I just, it was like a mistake I made as a young person that like, I never got a chance to step back and, and watch him, you know, and to like see him apart from me. And it was, that wasn't, it wasn't good for us. You know, it wasn't good for our, for me anyway. Um, that sort of independence of spirit, I think is, is helped along when you can step back and really appreciate the people you're, you're with, um, for, for their, for who they are when you're not around, you know, it's, it's important. I too have made the mistake of dating bandmates many, 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 many times. <laughs> I continually find myself in those situations, and one of these days I'll get it. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a natural. It's like it's so natural to want to like, oh, you're a musician. You you know you want to play music with the person. They're a musician. You want to share that. But I I kind of. I resist because I know that like being in the same band is just going to be too much and too stressful. 
and won't allow me to like, you know, a lot of playing music, you're like taking on characters or you're, you're, you're more than you are. Like when you're having an argument about, you know, paying the bills or whatever, like you want to have a space where you can go or you can kind of take on something bigger than yourself. Um, and if that person's kind of there, like, you know, your closest, most real person is just there all the time. Sometimes it's harder to, 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 you know, kind of occupy that sort of fantasy world that, um, can really make your art better. Yeah. Cause two hours before band practice, they saw you picking your earwax while you were crying on the phone with Verizon. <laughs> and now, now you need them to find you hot, sexy guitar lady. <laughs> And that's not going to happen ever. They're still, they're still mad at you from earlier. You put that very well. <laughs> yeah, I've been there, man. <laughs> I've been there a bunch, man. <laughs> it's never good. Yeah, it's, it's a hard thing to resist, but it's, I don't know. It is, because then you're on, you're on tour for like 11. Oh, no, I'm not young at all. I'm ancient. <laughs> I'm 106. No, you're not. Mm-hmm. to the to the to the Slater Kinney sweat cave <laughs> which I'm really really interested in this because I know I know another band here in New York that's like this wonderful band that tours a ton and they're huge and they're super famous and I have been to their practice space and it is a windowless hell sauna <laughs> um I you know I'm I'm in a hardcore band and we are very loud and very abrasive, and when we practice, we're in these tight, you know, confined spaces. The last dedicated practice space we had was in one of our band members' like attic over their garage. You know, it's it's hot and it's small, and you get used to the sound of things that are hot and small. Right. So you you write that way, and with the the guitar parts, and then you coming in underneath them, it's so tightly wound in your band. It has to be tighter than a spring's coil, or else it could dissolve into chaos at any moment. And you guys have mastered and pioneered that sound and made it like a thing, right? So if you're working in these close quarters, and you're really all screwed up into each other, what does it feel like to then turn around and sell out Terminal 5 twice? How do you translate that to a room the size of the fucking Super Bowl? Yeah, it, I mean, I was... I mean, I think that was part of that first show, like just being so kind of uncertain, like what is going to happen when we play these songs in a, in a bigger space. We did, we actually did some production rehearsals, which we had never done anything like that before, mostly because I just said, I have to play these songs in a bigger space so I know what to do. Like, yeah, <laughs> I have, you know, I, I, I need to know if it's what I'm playing is actually going to work or if I'm going to have to like adjust things a little bit. Um, but what I found is that what is required to play these, these very compact and, uh, explosive tight songs is just a lot, a lot of muscle and a lot of power. Like I, I really have to just play very hard and, and push the sounds through. So they're, 
so they're tough enough to like carry through those big spaces it's it's challenging it makes the shows these shows very exhausting Uh, and it makes the new songs kind of like the hardest songs to play you know because they are the most tightly wound of of all of them Um, so it was just like getting out there and 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 seeing I think the production rehearsals really really helped because we played in a big empty echoey room um and sort of got you know got used to it a little bit um we have some really good monitors that we take with us that helps as well um and some you know our monitor our monitor person is really important like in order to make the sounds that we're hearing um you know kind of familiar uh to us so that every night it's not like a new crazy sounding room you know we've done those tours many times where every night it's just you don't know what to expect sound wise um but with these big rooms it's definitely more challenging to like hear it the same way every night and for us i mean i need to hear it pretty loud um so a big echoey room is going to be is going to be tough so you know we just did what we could to like set us up for some sort of uh, success, you know, in that, in that regard. Um, but really it's just, it takes a lot of muscle. It takes like a lot of power to make that tight sound come across in a big room like that. I feel like uh, a lot of people don't realize that that's the real truth of being a band that tours heavily, that there are extraneous things you have to do outside of practicing your instrument and just kind of showing up and being a cool guy in a band. Like (laughs) you actually have to think about your body and your use of space and your energy levels. And you actually really do have to take care of yourself in order to play these shows night after night after night. And it's hard. Yeah, for sure. Like a a cold, a common cold for one of the singers is a big deal. It's a big deal. Like if someone just gets, you know, like everybody's going to get sick on tour. But when the singers get sick, it makes it hard to play the show right. You know, like we, we can't, they both sing so much that, you know, we can try to like, like Carrie got a cold. Uh, was losing her voice a little bit and you know we we try to play like a different set list and I, I'll put in more songs like with corn vocals but there's really no way you know Carrie sings a lot <laughs> she sings a lot and corn sings a lot and the the physicality of it um is is tough you know it's tough it is tough on their bodies they're um they do a lot of warming up this tour like vocal warm-ups which has helped a great deal um, but yeah, it's all, you have to, you have to pay attention to your, to your body. Um, and for us, you know, we're, we're not 20. Um, you know, it's, we can't just trash ourselves and expect to play these shows. And even like, even like doing press, you know, like doing a lot of press on the show day, if we're slammed from the time we wake up until, until the show, it's going to be tough for us you know it's like not just physical but it's emotional too like we need we need some space before the show to like get ready you know to like gear up so it's definitely as as things you know I mean I even when we were you know after dig me out even like we started getting a lot more requests for things naturally at first you're like just yeah you know oh this magazine that magazine like yeah we want to be in those magazines we want to reach new people so we'd be doing interviews on show days and driving and, you know, really working um, at all times of the day. And at a certain point, we just got exhausted and had to say, like, no more interviews on tour. You know, we'll do them all before we leave and then 
we just need to like be on tour and focus on that. So it's a constant sort of like uh, managing of the physical, the physical aspect of this, the emotional aspect. Um, you know, Corin's got two kids, like just making sure that that's all, you know, she's got that all organized, you know, so that she can get in the headspace of playing a show and not have to be worried about, you know, the babysitter, you know, or having that all set up in advance is really important. Um, yeah, I need a babysitter for the four guys in my band. <laughs> I can't imagine what it's like to have actual kids. I can't even imagine being on tour with four guys. I'm down to three now. <laughs> okay. I got, th- I got three dudes now, which, by the way, they are so mad at me today. I think two of the guys in my band are in love with your band, <laughs> and they are stomping mad that I'm the one that gets to talk to you. <laughs> they, um, and I don't know, they had that, that moment I was talking about where they're looking at it going, what is this? Yeah. You know, when, when the record came out, we were, we were overseas. And when, you know, you would know, of course, one of the only like really nasty things about overseas touring is the fact that your phone doesn't work or it only works when you're on Wi-Fi, or you're, you're like, you're, you're 18 hours away and you're out of touch. You can't, you're not on the same schedule as everyone you know back home. You can't talk to the people you love. And so we get very reliant on like, you know, we have an eight hour drive in Europe and our phones don't work. We have nothing to do. So before you leave the hotel, you download the entire discography of one <laughs> band and you use that one day to educate yourself. And I cannot tell you how amazing it was for me to be in the passenger seat and to keep turning around and looking over my shoulder on Slater Kinney Day. <laughs> Slater Kinney Day was the best. There was so much air drumming. There was so much head banging. There were these two like 22 and 23 year old guys whose minds were blown to confetti. <laughs> like hearing your records for the first time and these hour long debates about like, the record, you know, like the first record that they fell in love with, or this, well, this record makes sense, or let's go back and listen to this again. And like hearing them, uh, putting the pieces together for the first time. That's awesome. So they're, they're real, they're really in love with you guys. They're really, really in love with you guys. And the guys in my band, they are the best guys in the world, despite the fact that they're basically like kittens, <laughs> <laughs> but they're honest. Oh. They think you're the best band in the goddamn world. So they have really good taste. They do. <laughs> they obviously they do. They hang out with me. <laughs> I have to laugh when you're talking about how obnoxious it is when someone gets sick on tour, like how hard it can be. We leave for tour on Monday and I am so sick. I'm I, I, again, I, I don't have to tell you these things because you can't see me and you'd never know, but like every couple of minutes I'm putting my hand over my face and backing away from the microphone and like sucking up a shot glass worth of snot. I'm so oh, sick. No. I'm so sick and we leave in like three days, so. Yeah, that, it's really tough. Because all you, I mean, the whole point is to play the show. Yeah. It's the whole point. And then you feel like, ah, like you can't quite, you know, you can't, you can't reach that level you want to reach, especially... You know, if like something, you lose your voice, you know, something like that. But at least you'll get the worst out of the way now, probably. Yeah. And I'm already dealing with a pretty severe vocal injury. And I have been like, just, we just toured for like 11 months straight. And so my vocal cords are in terrible, terrible shape, but I haven't had time to go see a doctor about it. So I'm basically working under the pretense that I can't talk all day. I can give a show 
lose my voice and try to be ready for the next night. So eventually I'm going to have to go see like a surgeon and it's got to happen really soon. But do you think you have the nodes? Yes. I, there's something wrong. Like there's, yeah, I think I have nodes because I'm, I started to have trouble breathing a few months ago. Right. So I think there's like a buildup on my vocal cords, but I'm also in the process of quitting smoking, which is going to be great if it works. And so I'm trying to do proactive things to take care of myself, but man, being sick and having messed up vocal cords, like, I'm trying, it's one of those things where like, if you can't perform, and I'm sure you've had these moments, we all have, when you can't perform to the level that you know you're capable of because your body is putting up walls between you and like what you're trying to do, that is the worst feeling in the world. Yeah, it's horrible. I uh, I had nodes on my vocal cords for several years. We played a show at Madison Square Garden, and I think it was New Year's Eve, I think it was the New Year's Eve show, and I had absolute laryngitis, and I was like, okay, this is Madison Square Garden. Like, I'm going to sing. I'm going to try to sing. I'm going to do whatever I can do to sing, even though I'm just like a, you know, I sing backup. I didn't want to just not have those parts there for, you know, it's Madison Square Garden. It's a big deal. Right. And so I just forced it out, you know, and like squawked my way through it. And then, you know, I did like real damage, and it's just, it's a bummer. You know, it's a bummer. Like, Anytime I would record, I would, I, after like two takes, I, my voice would be gone. I'd get two tries at it and then it would be, you know, I couldn't reach high notes. It was like a, you know, you just, you learn to work around it, but it's, it is absolutely the most frustrating thing. Like, like this is, could be so much, you know, I want this to be as good as it can be. The, the interesting thing is that a lot of times people in the audience will say, oh, I didn't notice, you know, I didn't notice that you, you know, anything was wrong at all, but it's, you know, it's. It definitely noticeable as the performer, you know, because you want it to just be so great every night. And sometimes it's true, like something just gets in the way. Sometimes it's like, for me, like if the sound is really prohibitive for me to be able to like get into that headspace where I'm not paying attention to life and I'm just in the song, to get there, I like I need certain things. I need the whatever I'm playing drums on not to be bouncing up and down. And I need, like, it to sound loud, and I need to hear the guitars, and I need to hear the vocals. I really need to hear, like, what's happening. So that doesn't always happen, and then it can be sort of frustrating. Yeah, we have really, really consistent problems with sound. It's very, I mean, our band is so loud. Like, we're unnecessarily loud, to be honest, but it's fun, and it's nearly impossible, even if I'm sitting right in front of the monitors, to get me up above the band. Right. And some of that has definitely contributed to where I'm at with this injury. But man, it gets weird sometimes. I really, I, I'm 27 and I feel 100 and I just have to start, you know, I want to stay in this game for a long time. You got to start negotiating like how far you can push. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because you, you don't want to push over all the way over the edge. You know, you want to be on the edge at all times. But if, when you play loud music, it's like you need the volume. Um, yeah. Or you need something that's going to feel like that. Um, you know, I feel like better sound that's quieter is, you know, can, can work. But it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard to dial that in. I mean, even after all these years of playing, um, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to get it to sound powerful and not be absolutely ear and voice destroying, you know, hand, you know, I, if it doesn't sound right, like I'm playing too hard and my hands are just chewed up, you know, after every show, it's, it's like, you know, part of it, there is that, 
romanticism of like you give your body to the music, you know, but if you want to keep doing it, um, you have to in some way find a path that can, you know, kind of teeter on the edge of that without being self-destructive. I mean, you've mentioned Death Grips. You must know Zach. I mean, I don't know if you know Zach Hill, the drummer. No, I don't. I, I know every band he's ever been in, but I don't know him. Yeah. But Death Grips is like my favorite. They're so good. Yeah, he's he's like an old old friend of mine. Such a like a inspiration um, for me as as someone who like will you know sort of lives that lives that romantic notion like for real like he will sacrifice his body for his for his music or his art um you know that's not like i i can't i'm not like tough enough (laughs) to do that um but it is it is a very inspiring thing and i think people do respond to that you know being on the edge and um not protecting yourself and, and giving that much you know it's it's like it's it's really something to strive for, but it's also like kind of impossible to maintain. It looks cool when other people are doing it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you're like you know you're sort of the equivalent vocally of what he's doing. Oof. Yeah, self destructing. Yeah, it's a little bit. There's definitely you're watching someone you know r- rip themselves apart in front of you. Yeah. Um, and you know that's that can be like the most life affirming thing. I mean, it's, and, uh, but it's also, you're going to need to rest every now and then. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it feels life affirming in the, this sense that like I have a hundred life points and I'm holding them all. And over the course of a show, I'm giving them away and I'm giving them to people and people get extra life points. And now they've got 102 life points or 105. And then I walk off stage with 30. Right, and you feel very depleted. Yeah, and everyone else has 110, and I have 30. And it's not that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not shitting on my life. I'm living the dream, but, like, you walk off stage sometimes feeling like you took a year off your life. Yeah, it's, that is true. You probably did. Yeah. (laughs) You probably did. And it's, I think what people might not understand is, like, the emotional sort of the wreckage that you're left in, like, after doing that. Like, you're, like, I'm not just, like, ready to party after the show, right. you know? Like, like I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, like, antisocial after the show and, like, just wiped out, you know? Like, I can't deal with anything difficult or challenging. Um, I just have to, have to rest, you know? And it's like, you, you feel kind of alone, which is unusual because you're, it's such a communal experience to be out there but then afterwards you're just like um you know there's like a strange sort of sadness there that like you have to replenish and like get back to a place where you can go out and do it again um yeah it's not it's not a complaint at all it's just it's like a complex it's a complex state that you're left in um did you ever wait tables uh, very briefly in college. Sort of like waiting tables to me. I've, I've described it to my bandmates thusly. Um, the idea that, because you know, you show up for load-in, you sit around through sound check, you, maybe you hang out for a couple hours, maybe you go up the street from the venue, you find something to eat, you explore the neighborhood, you go back to the venue, you sit through the opening bands, you play your show, all the time you're talking to people, people are maybe hopefully excited to have you at the venue, you might have an interview, 
you've got all this stuff going on and then you play the show. That's like a, a six hour proposition. When the show is over, that's, that's waiting tables. And then when the show is over, you clock out. The show being done means your work for the day is done. The last thing I want to do after we finish playing is party. <laughs> that sounds like brain death to me. Like, well, <laughs> no, no, guys, no, no, no. like we used to stay at people's houses, you know, we would, when we were, you know, not making that much money on tour and we'd, we'd ask from stage like, Hey, can, you know, who wants to put us up? Hell yeah. Who's got the cleanest bathroom? You know, I mean, it's easier now, like, you know, you can get online and like find your network a little bit easier, but then it was just, you would just ask. And we would go to people's houses and to them, this was like the one night that the band came to stay at their house, you know, so they want to like show you their record collection and their books and their photo albums. And, you know, they have a cat with your band name and it's like, you're so appreciative, but you're also so exhausted. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, I just want to climb into my sleeping bag and put my headphones on and just relax. But it's, it was, it's, it's very sweet, but it's like. I don't know. It's, it's exhausting. Yeah, that's another that's another situation where I pass it off to the boys because they they love it. They love to party. They love to stay up all night and drink beer and read comic books. It's their favorite thing in the world. <laughs> that's really nice that you have. They them. love it. They're they're so social. They're the smartest, friendliest, like coolest, most social group of dudes I've ever been around. And they just they all love each other. And so they're always they're really easy. The guys in my band are really easy to be around because they're best friends. Like our guitarist and our drummer <laughs> are in another band together too. And they've been friends since high school. They're like best friends. So the two of them are like, like, like Tweedledee and Tweedledum and they'll smoke all your weed and be your best friend. And they're like <laughs> the coolest, they're the coolest guys in the world, you know? And so I'm the person that will walk into a situation and be like, I am so sorry to do this. Please show me directly to the quietest room in your house because I have to sing. I, I'll, I'll, I'll blame myself fully. I'll say, I have to sing tomorrow night. I need to, I'm so sorry. I would love to stay up with you all night. I hope you understand, but I need to go to bed like right now. I'm also, for a long time, I was the only woman in the band and I was obviously, you can read me from a great distance as the least fun person in my band. So I always, I'm, I'm really upfront with people, man. I've, I've spent many years on this planet and I feel that I no longer have time to fuck around. You know, I just want to sleep. The three of us were all, we like, no, I mean, there. Are, I feel like on certain nights, one of us will be social, but you might get us, like all three of us, with none of us, you know, feeling like, without three of us just all feeling exhausted, you know, that could be, and then it's hard. Then they have the merch person, you know, and that may be a letdown. Yeah. But then there's that one night every once in a while when everyone in the band, it's like a full moon and everyone is just nuts. Yeah, no, those are great. Those are great nights. We def definitely had a lot of those. Um, several of which are, are in the books as being, you know, like yes. exceptional. Corin lost her passport in France and Paris once. Oh, God. Just a wild night out in Paris. Um, yeah, we've, we've had a few, like, real uh, noteworthy, noteworthy nights. But, yeah, maybe once a tour, then it'll be like everyone's out, everyone's going for it. Um, but usually not more than that for us. There was one night, in, we our last tour was in Australia like a month ago, and there was definitely one night where it hit a point where all of a sudden I kind of looked around and said, we all need to leave <laughs> right now. <laughs> we gotta go. And I am I am a Meredith Cop killer of fun. I'm the person that's like, everybody in the van, time to go. <laughs> While I'm like housing a beer, just like, it's time to leave. 
we're, go- we're never going to be invited back. It's time to go. So that's what I call my dog. He's I call him like, the cop. He's a fun killer. Oh, fun, fun killer. Whenever another dog's trying to have fun, he'll go over and like knock it off. And I'm like, oh, what a drag. Oh, my God. Dog cop. <laughs> That was part one of the Talkhouse Music Podcast with Janet Weiss from Slater Kinney and Meredith Graves from Perfect Pussy. By all means, check out part two of this incredible conversation. Thanks to our engineer, Elia Einhorn. And you can check out more Talkhouse Music Podcasts at thetalkhouse.com music. <laughs>